Screening for asymptomatic bacteriuria is part of routine prenatal care in Canada. It has been years, however, since the evidence behind this routine screening practice has been reevaluated. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and today I'm speaking with one of the authors of a new guideline from the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Health Care, published in CMAJ. Dr. Ainsley Moore is a family physician and associate clinical professor at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Moore is joining us today on behalf of the Canadian Task Force Working Group to speak about this new guideline. I've reached her in Hamilton. Welcome, Ainsley. Hi, Diane. Thanks very much. Yeah, well, thanks so much for joining us today. So for any listeners not familiar with asymptomatic bacteriuria in pregnancy, can, what is it and how common is it? Um, yep, it's a pretty simple concept. It's just asymptomatic bacteriuria is just a significant or critical minimal threshold of a bacteria count in the urine. And specifically, technically, it's 100 times 10 to the 6 bacterial units per milliliter of urine. But what's key here is that it occurs without signs and symptoms of a urinary tract infection. So it's an asymptomatic minimal threshold of a bacteria count. So how common is it? I mean, do a lot of pregnant women have asymptomatic bacteria? That's another great question, and it's not easily answered. So in terms of the prevalence of, um, I'm going to call it ASB, just it's a mouthful to say asymptomatic bacteria. So the prevalence of ASB, we were not able to identify um, specifically in pregnant um, women in Canada. We do have information from non-pregnant populations, and, and these come from um, ambulatory women that are premenopausal, but there's a range on prevalence, and it ranges anywhere from 2 to 10%. So um, in terms of accurate prevalence rates, for um, ASB in pregnancy, um, we, we don't have that information, unfortunately, for Canadians. What would be the most common bacteria that people might have? So um, they tend to be coliform bacteria that colonize the lower urinary tract. So E. coli uh, would be um, an example. Yeah, you can see other organisms in urine. Um, group D strep is one of the organisms that you can see um, in the lower urinary tract as well. So if, if those kind of bacteria are not treated, what, what are some of the dangers? The consequences of untreated ASB um, are, are not clearly, clearly understood. So we don't really understand this natural history anymore of untreated ASB because of these long-standing entrenched universal screening and treatment practices that have been in place in Canada and other jurisdictions that have similar populations of pregnant women. So um, we can look at some of the reasons why these, these screening programs were implemented to understand what the thinking was and what, what people were seeing before, um, before such um, screening was implemented and what led to this, this practice. And um, what's underlying here is that it, it didn't come from screening sources of information. It came from indirect sources. So sources that date sort of pre-1980 that indicated that up to 40% of women um, with ASB developed pyelonephritis. Um, another source of information from the, around the same time period came from treatment trials. And these, these were treatments of women who had already been identified as having ASB. So they were screened, they were identified as having ASB, and they were assigned to either being treated with an antibiotic or not being treated. And these trials suggested that um, um, there was an association 
a positive association of using antibiotics in these conditions with um, reduced pyelonephritis for women, which is an upper urinary tract infection, as well as also um, reduced low birth weight and preterm birth. And so I guess you could think of that as some of the consequences of untreated ASB that contributed to this longstanding practice. There's, there's some information, some corroborating information more recently from cohort studies. These are uh, you know, 2014 cohort studies that looked at the prevalence of pyelonephritis overall in pregnancy. So not just in ASB, but overall in pregnancy that found that um, the rate of pyelonephritis since introducing um, screening decreased from 2% pre-screening in pregnancies to pyelonephritis decreasing to about 0.57% since screening. But as with you know, cohort studies over time, there, there can be other confounding factors that um, can contribute to decreased rates. And you can think of things like um, improved prenatal care, for example, perhaps a more rapid response to uh, symptoms and treatment of urinary tract infections, perhaps a broader range of, of antibiotics available um, currently versus pre-1980. And um, also, uh, maternal health may have improved as well over time. Um, there are fewer mothers that smoke, and there are fewer mothers that are having um, multiple children. So parity and smoking in pregnancy um, being risk factors for ASB. So, um, you know, we do see this decreased incidence of uh, pyelonephritis associated with implementation of screening, but there's other factors, too, that um, could also be considered or could also explain um, such changes. Sounds like screening for ASB has been around for, I think, probably well over 30 years at this point then. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, and it sounds like from what you're saying as well is that some of the consequences are sort of maternal in terms of pyelonephritis, but also uh, for the infant as well in terms of birth weight and, and other issues. Yeah, birth weight. Um, I mean, those. It, it, it's easier to actually think about, instead of the consequences of untreated ASB to think about the consequences of screening and treatment, which, of course, we have a better better handle on now since going through the um, the data. And uh, I can go through, uh, you know, what we've found in terms of consequences. What I mean by that is the benefits and harms of screening and treating for ASB. We can maybe go through that uh, a little bit later when we're talking about this. So, so the the task force decided that this was an important issue, but hadn't been looked at for a while. So, w- what does this guideline cover? Like, who who's it intended for? Um, it is intended for primary care. The um, main target audience is primary care clinicians who are providing uh, primary prenatal care. So, you could think of this being for uh, family physicians nurse practitioners, nurses, midwives, even physician assistants, anyone that's delivering uh, primary prenatal care. I mean, the other target audiences, of course, are women that would be um, you know, can, faced with such decisions about screening and treatment, and also um, policymakers that are looking at these you know, longstanding, broad, universal practices. Um, this, that's, that's who it applies to. The, the scope of the guidance considered the up-to-date evidence on this current practice um, for reducing both neonatal and maternal complications. It also, in terms of the scope, thinks about uh, we reviewed the harms of, of antibiotic treatment and also considered the values and preferences of pregnant mothers in this equation. Um, it's important to remember who it does not pertain to. So the 
that's that's the scope. The, the it, it does not pertain to women who are at increased risk of ASB and complications. So it doesn't pertain to women who have diabetes or who may have um, uh, renal anomalies, polycystic kidneys, sickle cell disease, or even women that have uh, recurrent urinary tract infections. They will be following different guidance. And, and where would that guidance be? Um, so um, the SOGC provides guidance on screening in each trimester for women that have uh, recurrent urinary tract infections, so screening for ASB in each trimester, and um, other guidance related to higher risk women, polycystic kidney, sickle cell disease, et cetera, um, would also come from similar authorities or from infectious diseases associations. So clinicians who are listening to this, if you have a patient who falls in that category, that's not who this guideline is for. What does the task force recommend in this guideline in terms of screening pregnant women for asymptomatic bacteriuria? Right. So the task force is providing a weak recommendation that clinicians continue the practice of screening for ASD um, and it's asymptomatic bacteria. And it's based on very low quality of evidence. So it's, it is a weak recommendation. Um, in terms of specifics, to make this a very simple and easy to implement recommendation, it's specifically recommending screening once during the first trimester. And that's screening with the urine culture. That's the gold standard um, for, for ASB screening. Um, you know, it, it recognizes that first prenatal visit doesn't always happen in, in the first trimester. You know, as practicing clinicians, we know women don't always come in um, for their first prenatal care in that, in that first trimester. So screening can occur anytime. It can occur after that as well. But just to make this simple and easy to implement, the recommendation is very clear about timing, and the, and the type of screen being a culture. And, um, and the reason for this is we just didn't find evidence on optimal screening time, but we did want to make it a very simple, easy to follow guidance. Now, you mentioned earlier about benefits and harms of screening. You want to tell us a little bit more about what you mean and what you found? Sure. We didn't find any evidence on the combined package of trials related to screening versus no screening and the consequences of that. We did find um, observational level evidence of screening, which this came from um, non-concurrent cohort studies that looked at pre and post implementation of screening. And what that information showed us was that there was um, a significant clinical and statistically important difference in pyelonephritis. So when you compare screening to no screening, um, we estimated that the number needed to screen to prevent one case of pyelonephritis is 77, but it's important to remember this is based on very low quality of evidence. So our certainty in this um, estimate is, is very low and that um, the true estimate is likely to be substantially different from that number, from 77. But there was a signal for, um, you know, a reduced um, incidence of pyelonephritis associated with screening. Um, for the other outcomes of interest that were reported in studies, we didn't find any statistically or, or clinically significant um, important differences that compared screening to no screening. And, you know, some of these um, other outcomes that we were looking for were things like perinatal mortality, um, pregnancy loss after 20 weeks, spontaneous abortion, pregnancy loss before 20 weeks, and we looked at uh, preterm delivery fetal anomalies. And... But again, this is based on very low quality evidence, and this came from screening level data. So with this very low quality evidence, the 
the task force still came down on, as you said, a weak recommendation to screen. What went into the decision making? Okay. So I think it's important to go through what we found for the treatment evidence um, to, to kind of understand how we came up with the, the final recommendation in favor. So we had screening level evidence, and then we have we had linked information, not directly related to screening, but linked information from treatments. And, and these are um, treatment um, studies that looked at women who are already identified um, as having ASB that were assigned to either receiving antibiotic treatment or receiving no treatment. And, and again, we found, you know, the signal for a clinically and statistically significant reduction in pyelonephritis. Um, and the number needed to treat here to prevent one case was six, but it, it, this was not very low quality evidence, but low quality evidence. So we're uncertain about the true estimate. It, it may be different from this, but we have, you know, corroboration from screening level observational data that that supports treatment level data. So, so there does seem to be um, a message here, or there does seem to be a signal for reducing pyelonephritis. The, the treatment data also um, indicated that treating, treating women who are positive um, with ASB with antibiotics also reduced the, um, the number of low birth weight infants and the number needed to treat to prevent one low birth weight was 22, but again, based on low quality evidence. So the true effect may be quite different. So the treatment level data showed us um, a benefit for pyelonephritis as well as a benefit for low birth weight. And so the test felt you know, quite compelled to, to recommend continuing the practice rather than dismantling the longstanding practice that, that we're uncertain about. So then for, for physicians in practice, how practically do they um, approach trying to balance this evidence, which, as you said, you know, is, is very low or low quality with, you know, the uh, patient in front of them who may have, you know, ideas, values, preferences of what they like? How, how should people practically go about uh, applying this recommendation? Yeah, that's a great question. And any um, any uh, reasonable guideline is going to have to provide um, practitioners with who who they need to consider that um, may prioritize these outcomes differently, and um, and how they might choose or not choose to be screened and treated. And so that's that's the challenge with a weak recommendation that that needs to consider the values and preferences of women. So in, in this case of asymptomatic um, bacteria. Women that are more concerned with the um, potential harms of antibiotics, although we didn't identify any um, adverse events associated with uh, report that were reported to be associated with antibiotic use, that may not be enough to alleviate the concerns of some women. And women that you know prioritize that harm over the um, uncertain benefits of, I mean, it seems to be a fairly a signal, but they may prioritize the, the concerns about those harms over the um, potential benefits of reduced pyelonephritis and, and low birth weight. And in those circumstances, there is potential value for a discussion, you know, between clinicians and patients in order to reach an evidence-informed state. So, so women that have these concerns um, will need a discussion or would, would value from a discussion um, that looks at the evidence, that looks at you know, the, the, the signals of evidence that we've identified, but that also um, clearly solicits what those priorities are for, for 
the individual in front of you. And, um, you know, women who prioritize the potential benefits of screening over um, any potential harm of antibiotics will just prefer to be screened. And in those cases, discussions not really warranted. Um, but that's where the nuances are. And so it's, it's considering, you know, the, the, the potential variation in those values across um, the women that you encounter and that you're providing prenatal care for. Now, the task force actually, to take a look at what values and preferences might be for women, I think you had two focus groups. Can you tell us a little bit about what the focus groups found? Yeah, so the focus groups, there were um, focus groups occurring at two stages of the guideline um, development. And these are, these are engagement stages um, with um, women across Canada. And the, um, the first stage of engagement occurred at prioritizing outcomes. And this was before the evidence was synthesized, before um, um, we could provide these, these, um, our, our certainty and, and, our, our, and our estimates of benefit and harm. So these occurred at the early stages of what the potential outcomes were, and, and women weighed in on um, screening. And what we found is that women didn't really have a concern about screening. They didn't see screening in itself as a harm. But there were variations in um, concerns about um, treatment. So treatment for treatment of a, using an antibiotic in, in a pregnant state for a condition that you, know, you have no symptoms for. And so there were some women who, who, um, who were challenged with that and, and who were not, not comfortable and other women who were entirely comfortable. You know, they've, they'd had experiences with antibiotics in the past. They'd had experience with antibiotics in previous pregnancies and things like that. So um, there was variation around um, treatment. I think that was the most important thing that our uh, focus groups identified for us. And so, so basically that really emphasizes why this needs to be individual discussions. So when you have a weak recommendation like this, um, because of the quality of evidence to see what an individual patient's values and preferences are for, for screening and the consequences for the, for the treatment as well. So, um, that, that focus group I know added a, a lot of value to this discussion. Um, so are there any final thoughts that you want to share with us uh, about the recommendation? Well, the task force is actually calling for um, more research. We couldn't strongly recommend a long-standing practice because, basically, because of the lack of high-quality trials, and to inform whether you know screening uh, women and their children if they were better off than those who were not screened. And you know, we have this uncertainty along these broader concerns of uh, antibiotic use, inappropriate antibiotic use, in increasing antimicrobial resistance. So. Clearly, more research was needed. We need more research on the prevalence of ASD in pregnancy, even to understand baseline. So baseline risk, you know, relative risk may be the same, but if baseline risk has declined, then that benefit, um, those benefit to harms may not be um, as evident or may not be as, as clear. Um, and I think one of the meta messages here is that this is an example of, of one of many medical treatments that have become part of standard care long ago, and we continue to deliver them without uh, rigorously evalu evaluating that underlying evidence. And so some such standards certainly improve at Canadian's health, but some may not, and, and some may even harm, harm people. So we are suggesting that new methods have been developed for evaluating the effectiveness of such standards of care, um, you know, that are ethically sensitive, because you can imagine trying to 
get these trials through an ethics board when it's already a standard of care. But there's, there are examples from other areas, um, from breast screening, for example. There's a trial in the States right now, and it's um, using um, a design, a preference-based tolerant design, where um, women that they can decide whether they're comfortable with being randomized to screening versus no screening. And if they're not comfortable with that, then they would go into the cohort arm of the study. And so there are, basically the bottom line is there are designs that could, um, that could be used to, to address the underlying evidence that surrounds these uh, many standards of care. So this guideline is a, is a great example of why we need to go back and relook at some of the things that we do routinely to make sure that new evidence hasn't come along that, that may change or, or even support the practice that, that we're already doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Ainsley, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join me today to talk about this guideline. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks, Anne. Thank you for the opportunity. I've been speaking with Dr. Ainsley Moore, a family physician and associate clinical professor at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. To read the Canadian Task Force Clinical Practice Guidelines she co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. While you're there, we invite you to listen to our many past episodes and leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Diane Kelso, Interim Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.